I grow up, I want to be an engineer. When I grow up, I want to be an author. When I grow up, I want to be a fine art thief. When I grow up, I want to be a When I grow up, I want to be a baseball player. When I grow up, I want to be a baseball player. When I grow up, I want to be a baseball player. When I grow up, I want to be a baseball player. When I grow up, I want to be a baseball player. Welcome to My Dilettante Life, a podcast where I talk to experts about what it really means to be a professional fill-in-the-blank, hosted by me, lifelong dabbler, Hannah Binder. Hello, listeners. Welcome to the fourth episode of My Dilettante Life. I'm your host, Hannah Binder. Today, I'm interviewing Megan Johnston about her work as an independent consultant. Enjoy! When I was um, applying to colleges, my essay was about being, I called it a renaissance woman, um, just like being kind of a jack of many trades um, and sort of um, wanting to do more of that in college, um, you know, rounding myself out a little bit more, um, but continuing to explore uh, my different interests. So and that's interesting now that you mention it, the like positive, negative and neutral spins that can be given to kind of the same phenomenon or character trait. Because mm-hmm. I think, yeah, like thinking of yourself as a, a polymath or a renaissance woman or a jack of all trades is a positive spin for sure. I mean, people talk about like Leonardo da Vinci as being like the origin of the term renaissance man. Yeah, because <laughs> he just exactly. But then I think when when I've been thinking about the genesis of this podcast, it's been more along the lines of like, well, I'm just like a generalist who has pursued so many things, but in a really shallow way. And <laughs> does that really have value compared to people who actually do deep dives into this stuff? Um, so yeah, that was just it makes me think a little bit about how we perceive it and how the language we use to describe potentially like the same approach to stuff or the same phenomenon can be very positive or negative. That is such a good point. I feel like that was the spin that I was trying to put on it because I felt like at the time that, um, you know, I had come from, I don't know if you had this experience as well. Um, I had come from a community that really um, upheld um, specialists, um, you know, people who zoned in on one thing and were very good at that and became um, you know, completely, um, I'm really trying not to use the word master. (laughs) Um, it's really hard. I don't know what the replacement is yet. Um, you know, but had achieved, I also just say mastery of, you know, a sport or, um, a skill at a, at a young age, you know, at a 17, 18 year old, um, age. And I felt like that was never going to be me. Um, so I couldn't compete with that. So I was like, what, what else can I, uh, what, how else can I frame myself here? <laughs> like in a positive, in a positive way so that I don't just look like, you know, some kid who can't decide what they want to do with their life. Um, so yeah. yeah, I also was wondering this morning, like how much this plays into imposter syndrome. Um, because I have to say that I'm really surprised that you wanted to talk to me about being a consultant because I really have never considered myself to be a consultant. Um, you know, I use words like freelancer and contract and, you know, contractor and things like that. Um, so it's, it's funny to me to like have to sit back and say, okay, yeah, no, I have been a consultant. So 
I, I feel similarly about the people who um, who so easily call themselves subject matter experts. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I feel like this with consultants as well. Like you'll see, I've had friends and acquaintances who have like worked as consultants within a year of graduating with their bachelors, uh-huh. which like flies in the face of what I tend to think of when I think of a consultant. Um, and similarly with subject matter experts, like, and it, okay, so for my personal background, I think partly like coming from Los Alamos, which has the highest per capita rate of PhDs in the country, mm-hmm. um, like, <laughs> so it just gave me a warped sense of what people needed to be considered experts. Okay. I'm like, well, yeah. <laughs> if you have a PhD, that's okay, but really you need to hold like several patents and maybe have like <laughs> a fellowship with um, nationally renowned academy of like people in your industry um, to be considered an expert. <laughs> right. And then I would meet people and I still meet people who are like, well, you know, I've been interested in this thing for like the last eight or nine months and I wrote a paper on it and, you know, publish something on Medium. So I am like an, a subject matter expert on this. And it's mm-hmm. just really, yeah, imposter syndrome and just like the value judgments we place on ourselves and on other people around yeah. these titles is super interesting. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I feel like I can't, I didn't come from uh, a place like Los Alamos with, uh, you know, science heavy, but I feel like, um, you know, my community growing up was similarly like a high achievers community. And that really sets a really astronomically high bar, I think. Um, yeah, I do wonder how how many of uh, those of us that feel like we have imposter syndrome um, come from communities like that. Well, and, and communities like that where you don't see yourself meeting that bar. Yeah. And yet how many of your peers also felt like they weren't meeting that bar, even though your perception of them might've been that they were incredibly gifted or accomplished. Like it's just that mismatch between others' perception of us and our own perception of our abilities. Like it's yeah. not, it has very little in my experience to do with like how accomplished or competent someone is and entirely about the mismatch of their perception of their abilities and others reception or perception of their abilities. Always before I had this idea, like, you know, especially having now worked in geriatric social work, I was like, one day I'll go into private practice, but rather than just being a therapist, maybe I could be kind of a consultant who has a broader scope of practice. So not just pure counseling or therapy, but also, you know, kind of like that holistic approach to looking at aspects of universal design and doing Mm -hmm. kind of care planning and care coordination and all of these other things. Um, And I could be a consultant. And I Mm -hmm. had this idea, you know, because I would have amassed a certain amount of expertise by that time, I would earn the title of consultant and Uh therefore people would be willing to pay me like an expert consultant Uh Uh And therefore I could, you know, move to some ultra posh town like Aspen and consult Uh with people and set my own hours. And, you know, it would be this really like glamorous, somehow jet setting life (laughs) of being a a geriatric consultant. Um, Uh And like part of me knew that this was bullshit, but part of me was like, (laughs) maybe that's what it would be like. I don't know. Oh my God. I am so excited that you said that just now. (laughs) Can I just read you 
my misconceptions. Yes, please. I'm really excited to hear this. Okay. So (laughs) when you, when you asked me, um, you know, should I I ask the question? Please frame it for me. Okay. Okay. So going to our list of questions. um, So what are some of the misconceptions people have about what it means to be an independent consultant? Okay. So my misconception was that it's all jet setting to conference speaking gigs and pulling a huge (laughs) fee for the small effort of sharing your knowledge. (laughs) Jet setting. Yes. Jet setting. (laughs) Jet setting. (laughs) Flying all over the world and yeah, going to, going to conferences and being the keynote and, you know, yeah, getting, getting to having people fly you places (laughs) specifically. (laughs) <laughs> for the privilege of being able to hear you speak about something for 45 minutes. I exactly. guess if you're the keynote, maybe an hour and a half. Yeah. Oh boy. <laughs> that sounds too long. Too yeah. long. Yeah. I don't know how I could speak for that long. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, <laughs> There's a reason why was... TED Talks are like 15 minutes long. <laughs> when was kind of the first time in your life that you became acquainted with the concept of there being consultants? Um. I think it was sometime around, I want to say grad school, but it might've been earlier. It might've been late college. Um, when I, I, I didn't know what I wanted to do, you know, I had a stronger idea of what I wanted to do after grad school, but after college, I was still like floundering. Um, Um, can I, can I just ask you just like mm -hmm. briefly, give kind of like your background of, oh, maybe like what you studied in college, what you went to grad school for, and then kind of professionally your timeline. Sure. Um, so I, um, I went to a four-year liberal arts college, a women's college. Um, I got an English degree. Um, actually it was a dual major in English and media studies. Um, I felt that I, when I went to college, I went to college in the Los Angeles area and I really wanted to be in the film industry initially, I wanted to be a screenwriter. I was convinced that this was going to happen. Um, between my junior and senior years, I stayed in LA for the summer, did a part-time thing at my college. Um, and then the other part of my time I spent in a Hollywood producer's office learning that I did not want to be around Hollywood people. So I Megan. went into my, yeah. I'm learning so much about you. We've been friends for a while now and I had no idea. This is very illuminating and I love it. (laughs) I don't talk about it a lot. It was a really traumatic experience, actually. Um, It was very much in the Me Too kind of vein Um, Mm -hmm. coming out of Hollywood. I wasn't, you know, I was not physically um, harmed in any way, but it was Mm -hmm. very like emotionally and mentally um, abusive. So um, yeah, I went into my senior year of college um, going like, okay, this is not for me. Um, now what? <laughs> so, um, so yeah, after, after college, I um, dabbled around in retail for a few months and then um, went to an employment agency, just like give me something full-time. I don't even care. Um, they placed me at a um, high net worth finance um, uh, advisory firm here in Portland. And I spent um, better part of two years there as an executive assistant. And, um, (laughs) and then at some point, um, about a year into that job, I, I said to myself, like, I don't want to be, I don't want to be somebody else's assistant, you know? 
Um, cause I was working with a lot of career, um, executive assistants and that was fine for them. And they had a different life path than I wanted. So, um, you know, I said, I'm gonna, I'm gonna apply to grad school. <clears throat> and I decided to apply to programs in, um, educational technology, which was something that I honestly think my mother found in the Arizona State um, Graduate School catalog. She was like, Megan, you are good at school and you really like computers. You should put those two things together. And I was like, no, <laughs> no, my mother couldn't possibly know like what I should do with my life. I can't let her decide. Um, but she was right. Um, and eventually I kind of came around to it. It, it kind of um, cooked in my brain for a little while. Like, yeah, you know, I, I really value education and boy, I want to be on the computer all the time. So let's go see what this is all about. So I applied um, to four different programs and um, and I got into Harvard. Um, and once Harvard said, come, I was like, all right, that's what I'm doing. Um, you know, again, this harkens back to my, um, you know, my sort of high achievers community and like, you know, getting accepted to Harvard was like, at the end of high school, it was like, that was the penultimate or not the penultimate. That was like the ultimate, um, achievement. That was, you know, everybody who was up on that pedestal was going to the Ivies. So, um, I was like, okay, this is coming a little bit later for me, but, um, I'll do it. So um, I spent a wonderful year in Cambridge, um, going to the Harvard Graduate School of Education in their technology innovation education master's degree program, met a couple of um, instructional designers who work for Pearson, which is a textbook publishing company. Um, and they were the smartest women in the room and I wanted to be just like them. So <laughs> uh, thus began my um my attempt to find my own instructional design jobs, which I actually did start out doing the freelance work. Um, and then eventually somehow wrangled a job at, at Pearson. Um, and then just kind of went from there. Um, I was in higher ed for a while and um, <laughs> there was my uh, couple years um, in New Mexico um, on an Indian reservation. And um, that was a whole experience and then came back to Portland um, to settle down. And at that time, I, I was realizing that um, I wanted to have the opportunity to access many different projects. Um, one of the struggles that I had as a full-time instructional designer um, at a university was honestly the, um, just the low amount of work that I had to do. I got really bored um, and I wanted to be doing lots of different projects. And so I thought at the time, like, oh, I probably have enough experience. You know, it doesn't seem like there weren't a lot of co uh, colleges or universities that were actively hiring full-time instructional designers. And so I thought, you know, maybe they're, maybe they're looking for contracts, you know, they, they have project-based stuff, you know, I could branch out, I could get into like doing medical um, field instructional design. I could go for some government kind of stuff. Um, and so I just set myself up as an LLC, made a website and was like, let's do it. Oh, and I did have one client going into this venture already. Um, that was through a Harvard connection. And, um, so I figured, you know, I've got, I've got a resume. <laughs> I can just, I can just do this. So, um, that was what I did for about four years. 
just took the plunge. So did you, um, because I know, for example, like in the world of social work, often when people are switching from working for an employer to going into private practice, they'll kind of do it incrementally. Um, Some folks will quit their jobs and open a private practice, but a lot of folks will you know, continue working at their full-time job and then start with like one night a week um, and then two nights a week offering private practice counseling hours. And then once they feel like they've built up kind of through word of mouth a reputation and they're starting to get more requests for clients, then they'll gradually transition into full-time self-employed private practice. Um, It sounds like you though, maybe kind of did it all in one go with this, knowing that you had at least one client already lined up. Yes. So because I was so bored in my day job, um, I decided to start looking around for side gigs and, um, yeah, this one client came along and I picked up about a 10 hour a week job that I would just do evenings and weekends. Um, so, um, and that was a successful project that turned into another one. You're listening to My Dilettante Life. Today's interview is with Megan Johnston, an independent consultant, and I'm your host, Hannah Binder. When, yeah, kind of was the first time that you became aware of consulting as a possibility? Yeah, I, I do. I do have a recollection of parents and family members saying, oh, you could be a consultant and saying it with that kind of like, Ooh, a consultant, which I think is part of where am I like, oh, that's a high level, like <clears throat> prestigious, very thing. desirable. Yeah. Prestige. There are a lot of prestige, probably make a lot of money, um, you know, not have to work that hard <laughs> kind of a job. <laughs> um, so yeah. And I remember just very much like, ugh, like that's never gonna be me. Like, I just can't see myself even getting there. Um, which is funny. Can I ask though, um, when family or friends brought this up as a possibility, where were you in your like education and career timeline? Yeah, I I do remember this being early, like late college, maybe in grad school. Um, and I didn't really know, you know, other than feeling like it was something for somebody with way more experience than me, I didn't really know what, what it meant. And I so don't you didn't remember have friends, for example, who were working in consulting, or you didn't no. have professors mm-hmm. who were work. Well, I guess even if I were to have a professor who was working as a consultant, I'd be like, "Of course, you're a subject matter expert. You literally have a PhD in this field, so mm-hmm. that makes sense." No, I I honestly don't know where even like my definition of consultant came from. I know it evolved over time. Um, you know, at first I thought it was honestly just somebody who you call up on the phone to be like, hey, what should I do about this? And they say, well, you should do this. And that's, <laughs> and that's it. Nope. That's your mom. That's or at least, yeah. <laughs> that's my mom. Professional mother. <laughs> How do I do this one thing in a recipe or? Oh, now that's YouTube. <laughs> oh yeah. YouTube is the world's consultant. <laughs> <laughs> Slash parent. Yeah. <laughs> gotcha. Mm. Um, so did you, did you, or do you have a role model who kind of inspired you to go into the work or who you model, you modeled yourself during your consulting phase after, 
Um, is there someone now that you have kind of a more concrete idea, I would hope, of what it means to be a consultant having done it? Is there someone that you kind of think of as the archetype of a consultant? <laughs> so, yeah, I love this question. Um, when I was getting into um, wanting to be a consultant, I actually framed it for myself as like, I am starting a business. I'm going to run my own business. And I think a lot of that is because um, through my youth, I my father um, is in was in sales. Um, he was in um, tech sales um, in my younger years. And then when I was in high school, he purchased a small business and um, ran that as like, it was just him and uh, one to two other guys for a while. And it's mostly just been him for a really long time. Um, but so I, I drew from watching him do that and watching my mom help him with that. So I kind of knew there was a little bit more to it than just doing the work. Um, but I also, um, kind of around my grad school time, um, that was really the, I think the golden age of recipe and food blogging. And I was super into that. And I, um, I read a lot about professional blogging at the time because I was considering that as something that perhaps I could do, um, part or full time. Um, that never got off the ground. But again, that goes back to like, I always wanted to be a writer. I was like, oh, this is a way I could write creatively. And it just never gelled into something that I could really commit to. Um, but so those were kind of the two different avenues of, um, you know, thinking about how can I do something that I am running the show um, and and took some inspiration from from those two, my, my dad and, uh, food bloggers. So do you then the way that I call up my mom to ask her questions and my dad for certain things, depending on what I'm asking about, do you like when you were kind of, especially when you were setting up your consultancy, would you call your dad to ask her advice or like, was he able to help you with some of your questions? Yeah, I, I talked to both my parents. I talked to my mom probably more because she was she was the money person. She was a um, an, a public certified public accountant um, in my elementary school days and and before that as well. So she always did my dad's books, and she knew a lot about the tax code and things. But um, yeah, I I would talk to both of them. I talked to my dad more about like networking and um, marketing and things like that. And um, so I had. I had a lot of help from both of them. Well, and I think that's so crucial too, to talk about like, again, thinking about misconceptions um, and preconceptions. Um, and I'll tie it back to social work just because, you know, private practice is something that I've witnessed a lot um, of people beginning. And again, it's similar. It's like people always think about, you know, sitting in their comfy chair with their patient across from them. And they don't think about, oh, all of the admin stuff, I have to get set up with um, certain insurance companies if I want to take insurance. And I have to think about marketing to actually get my name out there and to know where to put, you know, advertising money if that's something I need to do. And all of the administrative tasks that go into being an independent business. Um, so it sounds like you already had even if you didn't know yet or have like practice with kind of running those things with ease on a day-to-day -day basis, you at least knew what it entailed and that it wasn't just, 
um, the actual like work, quote unquote, of whatever consulting you were doing. There was also this whole other side that sometimes can take just as much time and effort, if not more, especially at the beginning as the actual work that you're doing. Yes, definitely. And I should, I should also add, um, you know, there are a lot of resources out there. Um, there was something called like the freelancers guild or something like that. Um, several kind of freelance oriented websites, um, to offer assistance, um, with that. And I, I remember reading a lot like, oh, the admin is just awful. And like, people will quit, you know, doing consulting because they just can't take the admin anymore. Um, so it's nice to know that that would be a thing <laughs> going into it, but I have to say for me, those tasks were always finite. Um, and so that made it, um, much easier to handle. I think, mm -hmm. um, you know, it's like, I hate doing billing, but you have to do it. And once you do it, it's over. You don't have to do it again for another month. So, mm -hmm. you know, it's, it's just funny. So, um, I watched the newest James Bond film last night oh. in the theaters. And afterward we were talking about how there are always these really glamorous shots of him, like driving along the, you know, Tuscan coastline or whatever. And you never see what's actually probably way more realistic, which is like a member of MI6 either sitting in traffic, driving in some major city or like, yeah, like writing up their expense reports for you know, the various like casinos oh my that they gosh. go to or whatever. Like you don't see James Bond doing that. And here I am thinking like you and I talked about the jet setting aspect of consulting. Oh, yeah. And so you think about people going to conferences and giving, yeah, keynote speeches and uh, being flown somewhere to like consult with some ultra, you know, private elite clientele or whatever. And you never think about, <laughs> when you think about consultants, yeah, like expense reports and billing and like setting up your like QuickBooks and taxes and all of these things that again, like are very vital to the successful functioning, as I understand, of mm -hmm. a consultancy. Yeah. Well, you start to realize if you're really project oriented, like I am, you get so far into the project and then it's like, oh shit, I haven't been paid. I haven't, you know, I, I haven't, my bank account is dwindling and I need to buy some software or I need to pay for my website, you know, month to month or whatever. And it's like, I have to ask them to pay me now. Mm -hmm. And that's like, I don't know. It feels weird. Mm -hmm. It feels really weird. You know, when somebody hires you to work for them full time, it's just part of your onboarding process. You know, you go to HR and you give them your credentials or, you know, whatever you do the paperwork once, and then you just get your paycheck. I mean, as Deposit long as they're a reputable <laughs> company and they're not doing well, like theft and all of that stuff. But yes, that is like the, yes. the baseline assumption when you have an employer. <laughs> yes. Or should that's be. what should happen. That's yeah. what should happen. I'm yeah. sure there's plenty of people that also have to go ask to be paid when they shouldn't have to, but yeah, but, but it's, it's maybe not feeling. as like built into kind of the structure, the way that being a freelance independent consultant has it. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Nobody comes to you and is like, Hey, we have, have we paid you this month? I mean, not <laughs> nobody, maybe some people do. <laughs> <laughs> the clients that if you find them, you're like, I am keeping you as a client because oh, that's yeah. amazing and takes so much pressure off of me. Thank you. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So what's surprised you about working as an independent consultant? 
Um, I will say that the most surprising thing, um, was the need to have to constantly sell myself. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it becoming designating your con- yourself, a designating yourself, a consultant or a freelance fill in the blank, um, does not afford you the, um, status or credential, um, for people to just come knocking on your door, right? Unless you have a very high profile, which I imagine takes years to build, you know, maybe some lucky people just fall into it. But um, I think for most of us, we have to really be pounding the pavement kind of every day um, to get, make sure that you have more work coming in Mm -hmm. Mm because a project will end Actually, the thing that happens, it's not just like, oh, the project ended and now I don't have any more work to do. Uh Uh-oh. It's like, you'll be working on a project and you'll be talking to the client like, oh, we have this other thing coming down the line. Like, oh, great. You know, that will be wonderful. And then you won't hear about it. And it's like, oh yeah, that got delayed. Or, you know, they'll say, oh, I have a colleague who's looking for, you know, some help. Let me connect you. And then it's like, great. And then maybe they don't reach out, you know, maybe they don't respond to you. Maybe you have one or two talks and then you don't hear from them again. And it's like, you know, you think you had a pipeline of like five different things coming down the line. And then all of a sudden, no, they've all evaporated. Mm -hmm. Um, So that was definitely the thing I was not expecting to be so time consuming and difficult Um, especially for me, I'm not a person who likes to talk myself up very much. So, um, that has been really hard. It's like an introvert's worst nightmare in a way. (laughs) It really is. It Mm -hmm. really is. Yeah. Well, and, um, you know, I think about, cause you talk about how you can kind of get like really deep into the project, like focused on, and I'm assuming that like that aspect of the work is really rewarding and you can kind of get into a state of flow, but it sounds like you almost always have to have this voice in the back of your head. That's like, think about where the next contract is coming from. And so are you ever able to just like completely sink into a really satisfying project and just kind of forget about all that stuff? Or do you always have to kind of have this running like transcript in the back of your head that's like, okay, I haven't reached out to so-and-so in a while. I need to touch base with them and see what they have coming down the pipeline. Right. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Got it. So then what are some of the differences? Because I mean, you've done this as a job. Um, It sounds like there was kind of a period of transition where you were doing it as a side hustle. I don't know. I have in my question what are the, some of the biggest differences you see between pursuing this as a hobby and doing this as a job? I don't know that people really consider independent <laughs> consulting a hobby, um, but what are maybe the differences between doing it as like a side hustle, um, mm-hmm. you know, something because you enjoy it versus doing it as a job where it is your paycheck and you depend on like having a reliable stream of work in order to pay your bills. Yeah. So yeah, when, um, I was thinking about this question and thinking about it as a hobby, you know, it's like you hit the nail on the head there. Like this is, this is definitely not like a hobby kind of a job. Um, you know, I think the difference between having this be a side thing and having it be 
a full-time, like I am doing this as my livelihood, you know, it really does come down to, um, probably even having multiple clients and balancing multiple clients. Um, I always really felt like I was forced to play the mercenary. Um, I, I have realized in the process of doing this that I want to be personally invested in the work that I do to some degree. And that's more challenging when, um, you know, when you're not full-time staff, um, you know, it's, I always really felt like kind of an outsider. Um, and that can hurt a little bit when you're putting, you know, part or all of your working time in, um, to a project and then not feel like you've had the same recognition, um, as other folks who, you know, maybe did less work on the project than you did. And it's, it's, it's because, you know, you're not, you're not on their staff. Yeah. So if you're doing this as a side hustle, it's like, you know, maybe it, it you have presumably if, if it's a side hustle, then you have something else going on that maybe you're more personally invested in um, would be my take. If you are enjoying my dilettante life so far, that's great. I'd love it if you took a moment to share the podcast with your community of friends, family, coworkers, and neighbors. Podcasts don't exist in a vacuum, and this one depends on people like you to spread the word so more listeners can hear from some seriously cool guests. Remember, you can follow My Dilettante Life on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, as well as finding new episodes on the website at hannabinder.com slash mydilettantelife. That's H-A-N-A-B-I-N-D-E-R dot com slash my-dilettante-life. Thanks! But especially with like nowadays how people do, we are encouraged to like monetize everything. Um, Yeah. I wonder if there are some things even like consulting where you could kind of see it as, yeah, again, not so much a hobby, but just like, this is something that brings me joy and it's nice to be able to do it and not feel the pressure of having to like achieve success at a certain level just so that I can like stay in my place and keep the lights on. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. So, um, I, I would do want to read you just this little paragraph that I wrote about this, um, kind of thinking about the difference between a hobby and a job, um, <laughs> you know, at a little, little bit more of a meta level. Mm-hmm. Um, so, um, you know, when you, when you do this kind of a job, it's really about knowing, um, the kind of impact that you want to make. Um, and again, putting yourself in the situation of a mercenary, um, you try to find people in projects that need what you have on offer. Um, and then you insert your own stylings into that as best you can while still pleasing your client. Um, with a hobby, you're totally self-directed and you decide what you create and why, and what you want it to mean. When there's an exchange of services, the priority is making sure that the client is satisfied. Um, and I think even with art and creative pursuits, when you're doing it full-time for pay, you usually still have to position your audience at the forefront, right? So I, I, I see this as kind of like um, a power-oriented situation where, you know, your client is the one with the money. They've got the power to really say what your work is going to look like. Whereas if you're doing something as a hobby, like there's so many things that I would never, so many hobbies I would never 
ever want to try to monetize. And like, you know, I think it's like when, when people say like, oh, you're really good at like painting or you're really good at knitting, like you should sell your work. And it's like, uh, uh-uh. uh, you know, <laughs> it's uh, you know, or if I do, about- I get the final say and exactly. Like, yeah. Not to yeah. ever again, like you said, kind of flip the power dynamic. Yeah, absolutely. Interesting. Okay. So kind of segueing from that then, um, like when you were doing this and you then were kind of at the the mercy of your clients to some degree, (laughs) um, what were the coolest parts and what were the most tedious parts of the job? Okay. Yeah. So the coolest part is why I kind of am still keeping a toe in it. Mm -hmm. Um, So getting to work on just all different kinds of projects, um, being exposed to so many areas of work that I didn't know existed. One of the great things about doing instructional design is that um, for most jobs, um, you get to be content agnostic. So you work with a subject matter expert who knows all there is to know um, about their field. And then you just bring the like learning kind of expertise and what I get out of that, which I think harkens back to the sort of Renaissance woman college experience kind of thing, um, is that I get exposed to so many areas, you know, so many fields that I'm like, I didn't know that was a thing. Like I've worked with, um, people in forestry, you know, and people who make sneakers and it's just like learning how much goes into it and just working with the people that are so knowledgeable and passionate about their field. Like I get a lot of my energy from working with those people who are like, this is funny, that are really zeroed in on that one thing and they're really good at it. So it's like a beautiful kind of partnership dynamic that I love. So in a way you're (laughs) saying that you are a professional dabbler. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I'm so jealous. 100%. You should look into this line of work, Hannah. It sounds like it, right up my alley. Um, okay, but then on the flip side, what are the most tedious parts? Yeah, so the tedious stuff is definitely the admin stuff. You know, a lot of it is like um, tax related. A lot of it is, um, you know, does my client have to have me set up as a third party vendor in their system? Um, and then, you know, oftentimes you'll be sending your invoices to one person and then they, leave without you knowing because you know you're not on their company email list and nobody tells you and then your invoice bounces and then you have to go back to your manager your project manager and say hey who do I send my invoices to now um uh another thing is um setting my fee is awful and I hate it (laughs) are there Um, like um tools to assist you with that do people talk about that in like message boards or chat rooms or yeah Okay. Oh yeah. So people talk a lot about, you know, how you need to, um, structure your fee to account for things like your taxes, um, like health insurance, like all your overhead, all the tools and equipment that you need. Um, you know, maybe even think about having some retirement contributions. Um, but what, what people haven't talked about or not in a way that I've been able to translate into being effective is um, how to communicate to your client why your fee looks so high. Um, So I have a lot of clients who, you know, they're like, well, we did some market research and we think that, you know, this hourly rate is appropriate. And I'm like, well, okay, that's true. If it's a full-time employee of your company who's getting full benefits, um, I don't get that stuff 
from you. So you're basically saying you think I'm worth about half of what you would pay, be paying somebody else um, who's working for you full time. So it really leads to just a general undervaluing of the actual work itself because, um, you know, you, <laughs> you're saying you don't think that I'm, I'm worth like what you're worth, what I'm worth. Right. Oh. Exactly. And so it's just this kind of, um, mental shift that you have to try to instill on somebody who is working with their own budget. Um, it, it, it's yeah. And it's are you tough. in any of these situations, are you competing against other consultants to get the contract? Um, I have never been brave enough to enter into a full bidding situation. Um, I looked at them a lot for a while and I just, you know, a, it's, it's so time consuming to put together a proposal. Um, yeah. And having very little idea of, um, how much, so I was like, this is kind of an aside, but I, I was part of this, um, local kind of government setup system for a while for pulling RFPs. Um, and every once in a while, an educational thing would come through, but it's like, they don't typically say what their budget even is. So, you know, I'm like, is it worth my time to put together a proposal for this? Um, when they're not saying how much they're willing to pay. Um, yeah. So I never, I never felt like that was something that I wanted to, um, to try out. It's interesting to me having like at one point in my professional life worked for a government contractor, um, the fact that you don't have to do RFPs and yet can find enough work because mm -hmm. like my impression of like dealings and transactions between clients and people performing the work, whether that's a contractor or a consultant, is that there always has to be like a you know, the, um, RFP process and the bidding process. Mm -hmm. Um, so like it hadn't even occurred to me that you could just avoid it. Like you didn't, you don't have to go through that. And I'm sure again, it's like yeah. industry dependent and, um, yeah, like I'm sure that it's probably not possible to get government contracts for like legal reasons, which are very legitimate without having, um, the bidding process and having them need to like look at and consider multiple proposals. Um, mm -hmm. but that's super interesting. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. When I worked for state university on a contract basis, um, yeah, they had an ability to hire somebody just, you know, just as an independent person rather than doing the RFP, but it did have a, a monetary cap. Mm -hmm. So if they were going to spend more than X number of dollars in a year on it, then they would need to go out to RFP. So <laughs> that made it so that I couldn't, you know, make mm -hmm. any more, which was, which was fine, which was fine. But um, yeah, it's a consideration. Yeah. Good to know. Are there any aspects of your life as an independent con uh, consultant that were basically exactly what you thought they would be? Like, was there anything that was so surprisingly unsurprising, I guess you could say? <laughs> um. I don't think so. Honestly, it all turned out to be very different from what I, the picture that I had in my mind of what could happen. You know, I thought that, um, I thought I would get lots of clients. I thought that people would come to me through my website. Um, <laughs> I thought that, um, I would be able to hire people. 
oh man, none of that happened. None of that happened. <laughs> you didn't um, build your empire from No, from I was like, I'm gonna have like an instructional design consulting firm. No, <laughs> that did not happen. <laughs> um, and it's funny because it's like it's not that there isn't enough work out there, it's just like people don't, I think people still don't see um the purpose of it a lot of the time and the value of it. Or if they do, then they don't have the budget or they'll just hire people in house and like that's fine. It doesn't have to be, it doesn't have to be like, I don't know. Yeah. It doesn't have to be a consulting business firm kind of thing. Well, and I wonder too, if there are like decisions that you would have had to have made in order to make that a success or, you know, like realize that, that you like, that weren't worth the trade-offs, you know, like I'm sure there, there probably are educational design consultancies out there that have multiple people that are like firms, but at the same time, when they were building it, they would have, they must have done, you know, different things than what you were capable and or willing to do. You know what I'm saying? Yes. Yeah. I think they had a lot of different capability sets. I think they were more focused on providing technology solutions rather than, um, you know, the kind of thought work and planning that I like to do. Um, and also I think the other thing is the market niche that I was going for that I thought existed. I don't think existed in the, um, uh, like in the volume that you were in the volume. Exactly. Exactly. Mm -hmm. That. Yeah. Not enough people with enough money to make it viable for, um, a real firm. Those that's where the, uh, corporate dollars are. Mm -hmm. So that's why those guys exist. Got it. Um, well, and I wonder, so just, and you, again, you don't have to answer this question, but I'm curious when you were getting everything up and running, how many hours a week do you estimate that you were working on developing your client list and, and all the administrative work and everything all told together? Yeah, I think the startup of it was definitely half of my time. I'll just say too, I wasn't spending 40 hours a week working on this stuff almost ever. It was more like probably anywhere from 15 to 40, um, 15 to 30, maybe. Um, yeah. You, you knew me at this time. So you knew I had a lot of other things going on, um, in my personal life. So I, and I valued that. I, I, that was part of why I didn't try to make it more into more than I did was because I wanted to save, um, a lot of my personal, a lot of my time for personal pursuits. Yeah. So. And I'm thinking about that, especially, um, the small business owners that I am familiar with, um, who have like built something maybe with multiple employees and stuff. Often that is their life. Like they are working, yeah. you know, 70 hour weeks, if not kind of in a way, always working, like they're never totally off the clock. Um, and if it's something that they're super passionate about and they kind of accepted that, you know, compromise that for the level of a success that they're looking for, they understood that they needed to just basically devote their entire life, potentially 24 hours a day, seven days a week to this dream. Um, then that's what they do and it works for them. But like, if you don't want to do that, then like, that then that I think just realistically means that there are certain things that small as a small business um 
often won't happen unless you have something like your last name is Hilton or <laughs> you were like, you know, one of YouTube's biggest stars or something. Mm-hmm. And maybe mm-hmm. even they're working like 70 hours a week and we just don't know it. Yeah. I think they, I think those, especially those YouTubers, I think they work harder than, than they are given credit for. for yeah. Sure. Yeah. So I know that this wasn't like becoming a consultant wasn't realizing a childhood dream of yours. It doesn't sound like, mm. um, but what would you tell, you know, either your pre-consultant self or someone who is interested in going into the field of independent consulting, what would you want to tell them given what you've learned through your experience? Um, yeah. So, Okay. This is this was a little bit harder than what would I tell my childhood self about <laughs> here's what you become. Um, yeah, I think for somebody considering this today, um, uh, my advice would be to be really thoughtful about what you want to do and try not to get in over your head, um, trying to offer every facet. Um, I think that, um, you know, especially for sort of the educational technology slash instructional design field, um, we are really expected to do everything. Um, you know, it's kind of a, a soup to nuts kind of kind of situation where, you know, if, if people are hiring an instructional designer, they, <laughs> they expect you to build them a course or a program. You know, it's not, it's not enough to partner with them on the um, curriculum design. Like they also want you to have all those media and tech skills. And I think it helps to be really clear about, um, you know, who you are and um, framing that appropriately. So I actually started referring to myself as a learning designer, just to differentiate myself from like, I am not your learning. The um, the platform that courses use is uh, called a learning management system or an LMS. So like, I am not your LMS admin. That's not what I do. You know, if, if, if you're looking for somebody to like, do all the little technical nuts and bolts? Like that's that's not what gets me out of bed in the morning. You know, I want to I want to talk to somebody about their full program and their vision for their students and do you know do a um, a learner centered process. So um, yeah, be be clear about who you are and what you want to do um, and what your and capabilities are exactly. And you can always develop new capabilities, but like again, you don't have to spend a bunch of time and effort developing a new capability. If one client wants it, you know, you, there's, there's always more clients out there, you know, they might be a little hard to find, but they're, they're out there. And, and, you know, like I said earlier, it's, it's about, you know, um, finding somebody who wants what you have on offer. Um, and I, I think the other thing too, you know, for people like me who are not really like uh, movers and shakers, um, don't think that you can't do this if you don't already have a strong network. Um, you know, all you need, I said, all you need is one client and the ability to tell a good story about the work you do. Um, so I think, you know, as I got better and better at describing the work that I did with my one client and developed a good story around it, that made it easier for me to land other clients. Um, you know, if you just kind of put yourself out there and you're like, Hey, here I am, like I'm an instructional designer, then people aren't going to be as jazzed as if you can say like, you know, I worked with a, um, a hospital to develop, I don't even know what I did. <laughs> See, that's not a good story. I worked with a hospital um, to develop continuing medical education for practitioners, um, 
globally about eating disorder prevention, right? Like they might not be into that specific thing, but if you can then go on to describe um, sort of what you built and the impact that it had, then um, that's a good story. Well, and it sounds like, you know, each opportunity to work with a client is also a way to learn more about yourself as a consultant. So I'm assuming you, you know, obviously people don't know everything at the beginning and nor do we tend to learn everything overnight. Um, And it sounds like you kind of grew and developed these ways of talking about yourself and recognizing your priorities and your boundaries within each interaction with a client. And so um, it just sounds like people can really, if you approach it with kind of that like open growth mindset of like, I will learn something from each client relationship, even if what I learn is like, don't ever work with that client again, because they are a nightmare (laughs) client. Um, That's still something like moving you in a positive direction. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. I think, yeah, having a growth mindset is really key. It's really key. You don't have to just um, tell your story to your clients, but you have to tell your story to yourself too, I think, and know what lessons that you've learned. Sometimes that takes a little time and distance though. Do you see yourself as like, as an independent consultant and more importantly, like a professional or expert independent consultant? It took me a long time um, to recognize the expertise that I have. And I think it's only been within the last couple of years that I feel comfortable billing myself as an expert um, in my particular field. Um, Were there certain experiences or people who helped you kind of come to that realization? How, how did you get comfortable with identifying as such? I don't think it was until I had other people in my, so clients and other, um, you know, people who I was working with directly describing me to their peers as an expert. This is our learning expert. Um, I don't think I would have gotten there on my own. I think I really needed to have that validation, you know, from my clients that they viewed me as an expert. What would you like to be asked about your career and your experience as an independent consultant? This was the hardest one. Um, I want to be asked how to make it better for those of us who are free agents out there. Um, This is a a way of working that has really exploded in the last five years and even more so, I think, um, in the pandemic environment. Um, You know, not, not just consulting, but just sort of generally being on contract or being a freelance anything. Um, you know, I really believe that we need um, better options for um, bolstering our health and wealth um, commensurate with our peers who are full-time employees. Um, I know I alluded to that earlier. It's, it's, it's not just, um, you know, your, like, your, your life outside of work that I feel like is viewed as less important, but it's also the work itself oftentimes. Um, 
so I think all of all of that comes together um, that it, it just need it needs to be better out there for for people who are um, who are project based and and running their own show. You know, I think, um, yeah, we need viable healthcare options. Um, they need buying. to pay you enough to buy that jet so you can jet set around. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, that's, that's always the dream. <laughs> no, but I think it speaks to, you know, like I've seen memes that talk about, um, especially for folks kind of in creative fields, when you are paying a musician, when you are paying an artist, when you are paying someone who, uh, like a pastry chef, you aren't just paying them for literally the hours that they are working on your commissioned work, you're paying for all of the time that they spend and spent learning and then continuing to hone and practice their craft. Um, And yeah, like, you know, I think you also see this in like the nonprofit world where everything is on cutting down administrative costs as much as possible. And it's like, Mm -hmm. no, there shouldn't be anything wrong with like paying people who work at charitable or nonprofit organizations a decent, not even just like a living, but a decent wage. A decent wage, yeah. That's not a viable wage. Yeah, that's not like unethical because that money is going to to their well being and their like lives, as opposed to directly to the clients or work that the organization is serving. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So yeah. Okay. It says a lot about what we value as a society. Anything that we didn't cover today, this has been really, um, yeah, like revealing and awesome. And I enjoyed hearing a little bit about your life as an independent consultant, even though there weren't (laughs) any, you know, jet setting stories to talk about. (laughs) That's okay. Yeah. Well, I'm really curious just because I, you know, I can't really put a finger on when my definition of consultant formed or even what it really is or was at different times. Um, what is your definition of a consultant? And do you know when you developed that um, definition? Hmm. Good question. I guess I would think of a consultant as, um, yeah, so someone who is seen as having some expertise that could be, that could mean any number of things. So you can be an expert in like learning design, but you could also be an expert in like efficiency processes or, you know, like it can be in one very specific um, like content area, or it could be something that's more like generic to multiple organizations, but you have an expertise that people then consult with you on. um, And typically, yeah, like in the sense we're talking about that they don't want to have an in-house consultant. So Mm -hmm. they go to someone external who is like, then like their work is based on them having that established expertise. Yeah. That's, I don't know. That's a very, that's a very good and clear definition. I think um, definitely describes the work that's actually done, um, which I don't think my <laughs> personal definition of consultant has really ever done. <laughs> <laughs> what is your personal definition? If you don't mind my asking. Oh, yeah. I mean, I think, I think largely I still do well for myself. I think of it as just like, I do the same work as a full-time person on your staff might do. I just am not part of your full-time staff. Right. But I think what you, um, what you called out is like the expertise portion. And I think that's like the defining element between 
a consultant and maybe like a contractor or a freelancer, mm-hmm. right? Like maybe is there a hierarchy of these things, like in terms of experience and expertise? I don't know. Hmm. I don't know. I mean, and basically like, cause I hadn't really thought about it. So I was like, huh. Well, just thinking about the term to consult someone, I'm like, well, I guess I'll just kind of like extrapolate from that. But I could also uh-huh. see how it feel it might feel a little bit again, like, yeah, and I think about this too, like being a woman in business, like, does it feel at all presumptuous to then say, I have expertise, I am an expert in blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. Um, and so is that maybe where someone might be more reluctant to say, I am a consultant because I am an expert, a recognized expert in this field. And therefore people should come to me, um, in order to like consult with my expertise and benefit from it. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and I think that's part of why I've, um, had a difficult time applying the term consultant to myself is because I feel like it implies like, I know the answers. (laughs) (laughs) Mm -hmm. which maybe I do I know some answers but as a consultant I often am in the business of asking questions Mm -hmm. and getting people to come to their own answers and conclusions so I don't know I think maybe it's more that there's like a very um sizable element of thought work involved in being a consultant Mm -hmm. that distinguishes it from contract work in general, where maybe you're more focused on what is the work product. I think for consultants, um, a lot of it is just like thinking. (laughs) (laughs) Very cool. I think we defined it. Yeah. Go us. We get a gold star. We're now experts in defining what it means to be a consultant. Consultant, consultants, consulting, (laughs) consultants. Love it. I can't even say that. Consultancy subject matter experts. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. I grew up, I'd like to be a mermaid artist. I hope you enjoyed listening to this episode of My Dilettante Life. I'm your host, Hannah Binder. The podcast theme music was composed by Anna Bradley, with sound editing assistance from Yuli Anerson. The podcast logo was designed by Ashley Burke with help from model Ivy Bean. Thanks to our guests and to all our listeners for tuning in. If you have follow-up questions for a guest, send them in for a chance to be featured on an upcoming Audience Asks segment. My Dilettante Life is available wherever you get your podcasts, as well as directly at hannabinder.com slash mydilettantelife. That's H-A-N-A-B-I-N-D-E-R dot com slash my dash dilettante dash life. Tschüss!